Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome. Today is Monday, 29th, 2023. My name is Carl Michael Henneking, and I'm hosting this show today. In our last show, we talked about innovation in the field of centralized crypto exchanges and how the CAX block trade builds a value proposition via gamification of the user experience. So now it's time to turn our attention to the decentralized crypto space. And I'm pleased to have Darren Kamas, the CEO of iPOR, a decentralized derivative exchange with me. Welcome, Darren. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Before we start our talk about innovation in the DEX decentralized exchange space, a disclaimer for our listeners. The content of this podcast show is by no means investment advice or any other kind of advice. These are just subjective personal opinions of Darren and I. So, dear listeners, for your personal investment, please do your own research. But let's start now. Darren, so how did you come to the crypto space and what was your moment of truth? There was kind of a strange moment of truth. I, I would say I'm a very old person in, in crypto years. <laughs> I got started in 2011. So I guess the moment of truth was I met some guys that were starting up one of the world's first crypto exchanges. It, it was at that time only Bitcoin. And they told me that we're starting a Bitcoin exchange. I said, what's Bitcoin? They said, it's like peer-to-peer -peer crypto anarchy for money. And I didn't have any idea what they were talking about. But I went and studied all the resources I could find about Bitcoin at that time. It was really fascinating. I did not understand maybe the vast majority of it, but I was hooked. And so from that time on, I've been building in the crypto sphere. Wow. So since 2011, you are really a veteran. With a dozen years, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to talk a little bit more about how you came to the decentralized exchange space later. But before we do so, I think for all our listeners who are not so deep into DEXs or decentralized exchanges, let me run you through a short introduction. Other than, let's say, centralized exchanges like Binance, Coinbase, or OKX, decentralized exchanges are peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces for trading digital assets. So crypto traders make transactions without any central entity involved. So no Binance, no Coinbase, no OKX. Instead, Transactions are facilitated through smart contracts. It's all software. It's all automated. Decentralized exchanges are usually non-custodial, which means users keep control of their wallet and their private keys. So that's another major difference to centralized exchanges. Decentralized exchanges gained strong popularity over the last couple of years and especially over the last couple of months. So the trading volume on DEXs currently stands at around 60 trillion US dollars per month. And this is like a 15 to 20% market share of the overall crypto exchange market. And in April, Uniswap, for example, as the dominant decentralized exchange, even overtook Coinbase in trading volume. But it's not only Uniswap, although Uniswap really dominates the market. There are other DEXs like Pancake, Swap, Dodo, or Curve Finance. The question is, where does this popularity stem from? Why do DEXs become more and more popular? In essence, there are, I would say, three advantages of DEXs compared to centralized exchanges. 
One big advantage is that more tokens are listed. So there are more digital assets available. It's simply because of the fact that this classical listing process that you have on centralized exchanges does not apply here. So there's no regular com compliance issue. That is why new projects can be listed more quickly or more or less can be listed immediately after launch. That's a big plus for DEXs. Second, there is anonymity and privacy since there is no KYC required as it is with centralized exchanges. And last but not least, there are, you could say, there are less security risks for traders since DEXs are non-custodial. I mean, the FTX, Terra Luna, Collapses, ETC, they really made it obvious to the people in the crypto space that this non-custodial feature is a big pro of, of a DEX. If we dive a little bit deeper for this, I think I would need your help, Darren. There are two main types of decentralized exchanges, right? One is automated market makers and the other is order book decentralized exchanges. What is the difference? Yeah, so I mean, the order book exchanges, they'll be very similar to the centralized exchanges where you have a set of, you know, limit orders that are placed by active participants. And this is probably the most efficient way to discover price. But the reason that you don't find this on most decentralized exchanges is because actually blockchain, you have these huge trade-offs, you know, where you see something like Ethereum as the global computer, there's a cost. So every computation has its cost. So doing something like an order book exchange, it's very good at price discovery. But, you know, if you're very actively managing positions on something like Ethereum, you're going to go broke very quickly. So actually the vast majority of DEXs use an automated market system. And what that is, is you typically have a liquidity pool in which you deposit typically two assets. It can be more, but let's use the simplest version. It's a, it's a pool of two assets. Let's say USDC and Ethereum. And what happens is you have a passive participant who is considered the market maker. They place their funds there. There is a magical pricing brain called the AMM, and that's a, usually a constant function market maker, or it's basically an equation that prices the trade-off between volume and size, volume and slippage and size of an order, and that governs the exchange rate between the two assets. And so this is a very simple construction. It's something that's cheap enough to run on chain, and that was really what kicked off the kind of birth of popularity of the DEXs is the constant function market maker and the famous X times Y equals K formula. I think compared to market making, let's say in traditional finance, I mean, these are mostly institutions who are doing the market making for DEXs that can be retail investors as well, right? That's right. I, I would say, you know, in the, in the automated market maker version, it's extremely passive. Right. So anyone can be a market maker. They place two assets in a pool. They're exposed to the trade off between those assets and also something that's known as impermanent loss. But they can make the fees, you know, as people trade against them. And so this is bringing the function of market making to the average user. If I understand it correctly, order book market making didn't become popular also because of the fact that. When every trade has to go on chain, this consumes horrible amount of gas fees. So from that perspective, it's simply much better 
to move to automated market makers. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that drove the adoption of AMMs, right? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, it, it's really it's it's very expensive to replicate an order book on chain because you know if you have to update the global state to update an order position, that becomes extremely expensive. It, you can have something like Serum on Solana, or you know, the, a lot of the perps dexes they're running on L twos on rollups where it, the transaction fees are cheaper. Otherwise, it's impossible on Ethereum at these current gas prices. Next to automated market makers or very small portion of order book DEXs, there's a kind of third category, right? Which we call DEX aggregators. Maybe the best known one is one inch. What are these guys doing? Yeah, so I mean, they're, they're basically doing smart order routing. So tapping into a bunch of different order books and finding the best path between points. I mean, you get inefficiencies in, in DEXs as well. You know, let's imagine if you have two DEXs that exist in the world and someone takes an order on the other one, well, the pricing is going to be out of balance and it can be opportunistic for an arbitrage trader or it can be opportunistic for an asset buyer who is going to get their best execution. So you can consider it something like, actually I saw a nice, nice visual, I think it was on uh, Dodo, it was. It looks like you know one of the travel online travel agency aggregators where it's taking you through one dex and another. Mm -hmm. It's like finding your best path, and so it's basically best execution order routing on chain. There is this constant function market maker mechanism to find prices or determine prices, but there are also automated market makers who rely on external market prices provided by oracles or other exchanges. What are the pros and cons of these two different routes of price recovery? So constant market making versus the external based market making. I mean, the external price space, it's always, you know, typically price is being pumped in through an Oracle. So an Oracle is essentially a wrapper to an outside data feed, a data feed that's not native to the blockchain. So for example, if you're looking on like something like DYDX or GMX, which are a perpetual DEXs, you know, they need to get a price feed from somewhere. And then they have an internal system where people are betting long or short, and it becomes kind of a player versus player mode. And this external price feed is critical for fixing and, and settling the instruments. The, the downside would be, of course, the reliance on the price feed itself becomes external to the blockchain. So it becomes you know, exogenous risk, but this is also pretty common for people to rely on these price feeds to price different instruments. And often you'll have the arbitrage traders with automated trading, even between, you know, centralized exchanges and DEXs that are relying on, on various price feeds on and off chain. If I use an Oracle versus a constant function market maker, how does this compare in terms of capital efficiency? Isn't this Oracle version sometimes or most times better from a capital efficiency perspective? Or, or has there been an evolution in the constant function market makers, which compensated for this initial issue? I, I mean, it can be. So, the, you know, the constant function market maker, if we're, if we're talking about the simplest form, would be something like Uniswap V2. Uh, you, have a concentrated uh, you have concentrated liquidity like Uniswap V3, which is much more active. You can consider it a trade-off between, let's say, the you know the constant function and an order book-based mechanism. 
And this allows people to price much closer and much more actively towards what's happening on external markets. But there's a trade-off because you have to be much more active. It can keep liquidity much closer to, to what's happening on different exchanges. It can keep liquidity much closer to what's happening in the market. So it's actually more capital efficient. But you often see a lot of different triangular trade arbitrage, which is happening between typically a base asset. You know, if we look at Ethereum, it would be you know the base asset, the Ethereum cost, and then the dollar price. And someone is arbitraging that between you know the centralized exchanges, the perps dexes, and the spot dexes that have the AMM pricing. Capital efficiency is one thing people have to keep in mind when they are using a DEX or trading on a DEX. The other thing is, especially for liquidity providers, is impermanent loss or divergent loss. It's a very complicated concept. Can you explain this in layman terms? Yeah, so very quickly, you know, the overview of impermanent loss is there is a concave payoff between two assets. In layman's terms, when one asset is appreciating, you're getting the other asset, right? So uh, if you have a quality asset and a subpar asset, typically your position will get full of the subpar asset, right? Mm. And so this is an issue also with uh, the shape of the curve of a constant function market maker. And so you have different ways of addressing this that are coming out. It's either redesigning the curve of the AMM at its core, and that could be something like Curve Finance does, I believe Bancor B3, you have something mm -hmm. like Swap Finance, or you also have a kind of derivatives of a Uniswap V2 position. And this could be something like Smiley Finance or, or Gamma Swap, which is essentially creating an inverse payoff. So you have kind of very interesting ways of solving this problem of impermanent loss or getting overweight you know, in a depreciating asset. So you have different ways to either hedge that or to reduce the impermanent loss, something like a balancer 80-20 pool. So there's a lot of innovation around how to how a user can provide liquidity without being overexposed to a potentially depreciating asset. This is maybe one of the strongest innovation drivers currently in the AMM market. There are lots of new concepts, lots of new protocols popping up to trying to tackle this issue. Are there any other big issues or problems you think which need to be solved in the DEX space next to capital efficiency and impermanent loss? For example, what do you think about UI UX? We have a very different user experience. So, you know, maybe a quick like a trip down memory lane. You know, when I started 12 years ago, the UI UX of Bitcoin wallet was awful. It was absolutely awful. You had to download the Bitcoin Core client. You had a pop-up that looked like a leather wallet, you know, and then it had to sync for, for hours, right? Fast forward to DeFi Summer, you have this crazy kind of this box trading screen that was popularized by Uniswap, then copied by SushiSwap, which is you trade one asset for another and you get this uh, little slippage calculation factor. And this is very basic, but... The good thing, it was, it was simple enough for a retail user to basically effectuate a swap and to understand more or less what's happening. But you have other tools around there, like I believe Into the Block was creating something like an impermanent loss 
calculator of, of the LP positions. You have something like Dex tools, which is something that I use on a, on a daily basis, which is able to create a series of candlestick charts out of Dex trades. And then putting up an interface over that, you know, that's really a huge improvement over like the basic swap screen. I think that these tools will be built. I think that there's a lot of kind of open data that you can get natively from blockchain, even calculating impermanent loss, calculating slippage, doing things like estimating a front running attack by an MEV bot, which is maybe yep. a bit complicated here, but it's basically getting subpar pricing. So a lot of these things can be added in. It's, I think it's just a matter of time. So we talked about capital efficiency. We talked about impermanent loss. Other challenges are around MEV, front running. How you see regulation? I mean, if we have like 20% market share of DEXs now, it means that still 80% of the trading volume is with centralized exchanges. So as you said, Uniswap is not difficult to handle from a UI UX perspective. Why is it still 80% with the DEXs? Is the major inhibitor here regulation or what keeps people away from using DEXs? I, to be honest, I think it's access and ease of use. So maybe the mm. UX you know, model that you were talking about is important. So most of the people that, I, from my point of view, my perspective, most of the people that are kind of crypto speculators, most haven't actually interacted with a blockchain. So their digital assets are actually an internal database entry on, let's say, their Binance account or Coinbase account, for example. Mm. Whereas, you know, for me, I do most of my trading through DEXs just because I like the experience and it's, it's easy. You don't have to have the login. You, you go switch between any two assets. Sometimes you have the high gas prices, but, you know, it's actually, for me, it's a better experience than on the centralized exchanges. And so typically I'm not using or swapping on assets that I don't have wallets already set up on, you know, like let's say a different chain. So there's a, you know, a limiting factor in there. Uh, but I would say that most of the crypto or DeFi natives are going to be using the DEXs just because of ease of use. And the other thing is counterparty risk. <clears throat> so with the exchanges, you have counterparty risk. And actually my chief scientist, I met him first in 2017, the one, our chief scientist at iPor Labs. And he was also doing, he was building DEX software And he's coming from, you know, the institutional side and he phrased DEXs as non-custodial exchanges. So that's quite fascinating mm -hmm. where the smart contract is your custodian. So instead of having the centralized exchanges that have a licensed regulated custodian or let's say the more cavalier ones that we know, like FTX was it was judge jury executioner, you know, it, it was your custodian in the DEX case. For better or for worse, the smart contract is your custodian. So that changes the locus of trust. So, you know, to be honest, I prefer that. So we talked about kind of technical evolution of DEXs so far. I think there's another direction. And the other direction is if you look at markets, at least I see more and more specialized DEXs like Curve for stable coins, DYDX, they offer margin trading. You as IPOR, you're offering interest rate swaps. Do you think that this kind of specialization index is going to continue? 
or let's say in three or five years down the road, we would rather see a concentration again because otherwise liquidity would be too much fragmented? I think it has to continue the specialization. And I think we can have a better use of capital efficiency. So you have something like, you know, there's these guys that are in France called Mangrove. And the whole idea is you take a, a certain margin or you take a certain collateral and you can use it in multiple venues at the same time up to a certain limit and does the capping, right? So the liquidity, I think, is a different beast that we'll get to. You know, we need different like infrastructure uh, layer tools. Mm. Also, I mean, that's also about capital efficiency. But I think the specialization has to continue. I think we do have an oversaturation of DEXs that don't have really any fundamental value add. And we really need, you know, a, a maturation of the financial tools that are out there for actually the market to mature. I think this is a good bridge towards IPOR, I would say, because you are a specialized DEX, specialized in interest rate swap. I think you need to let our listeners know what, what IPOR is really doing. And by the way, what does IPOR stand for? IPOR is the inter-protocol overblock rate. Okay. So you can consider a little hat tip to the, to the LIBOR, but we embrace, you know, the best of traditional interest rate benchmarks and apply the best of decentralized finance. So it's a, you can consider a block over block or real time cost of capital inside of DeFi and how it's constructed is a protocol to protocol call. So for example, the, the IPOR index, it reads from Aave interest rate contracts, it rates, it reads from the compound interest rate contracts, and it creates a weighted benchmark rate that's published to chain. And that publishing to chain is like this kind of Oracle construct we talked about, but it's native to chain. So it's like the risk-free rate inside of DeFi. And so that's on one side. So IPOR is a benchmark interest rate. And then on the other side, IPOR is derivatives DEX. And the derivative DEX, in simple terms, allows you to trade the direction of the IPOR. So in TradFi, you know, if we look at, let's say, some of the collapses in the U.S. banking system recently, they were really related to two things. Lack of risk management around interest rate exposure, and specifically in the bond portfolios, and duration risk. And actually, the two part of IPOR are, you know, this IPOR rate can be fundamental in building out term structure and managing duration risk. And then the interest rate derivatives help people manage their interest rate risk inside of the DeFi credit markets. So that means IPOR enable users to go long or short on interest rates and therefore to hedge their interest exposure, right? You allow for arbitrage between interest rates and users can just speculate on interest rate trends. I mean, at the heart of all of this at IPOR are interest rate swaps. How do they work on IPOR exactly? Yeah, so a, traditionally an interest rate swap would be between two financial institutions that want to trade cash flows. One is betting that the rates are going to go up over time and when the other is betting that the rate's going to go down. Typically, you'll have two different sides, a lender and a borrower, and they're exchanging cash flow. So over time, they'll exchange the fixed, the, the fixed leg for the floating leg or the fixed rate for the floating rate. In the IPOR context, you have one passive party. So we embrace the idea of a passive liquidity provider. So a passive liquidity provider, for example, they put down USDC. And that USDC is out there to underwrite the interest rate swaps in USDC. 
the AMM is a bespoke AMM built specifically for the iPort protocol that essentially will bring in the different market dynamics, such as models out volatility. And in the V2, max notional exposure, max drawdown, the different kind of market dynamics that are happening in the interest rate market. And basically it gives a spread above or below the IPOR and a trader can pick it if they want to either pay fixed or receive fixed. So on one side of the trade, you have a passive liquidity provider who is essentially the market maker. The AMM price is the risk. And then the trader decides to take the rate. And these two parties, the liquidity provider and the trader are exchanging cash flows over the duration of the instrument. And as a liquidity provider, what kind of yields can I get on IPOR currently? I mean, you have UCC, DAI, and you have Tether, right? So, so I think all three, all three pools right now should be trending around 5% per annum as a liquidity provider. Okay, so let me just read for the past 30 days. USDC, this is USDC on USDC returns, has got 4.89% APR, USDT is 5.56, and DAI is 3.89. And so where this yield is coming from is the stables, they sit in the pool by a depositor. While they're sitting idle, they actually go out to the money markets to yield. And then they earn fees from people trading against the pool. So the fees can come from opening contracts, the net outcome of the contracts, and then finally asset management yield. And so that's, that's the basic, it's a simple way that the LPs are earning money. And these yields, they are partially stablecoin yields and the yield is partially coming from your own token? No, so that's actually stablecoin on stablecoin yield. So this it's is what we consider the real okay. yield. Mm -hmm. There okay. is, a, so, you know, there is a... A liquidity mining function here. Yeah. And if we're to add to that, then the base yields would be anywhere between 14% and 18%. Oh, right. So okay. that would be the liquidity mining yield earned on top of the base yield. Yeah. And so there's an entirely other function, uh, you know, that I think it's too much to cover here, but you know, the, the, the 3.8 to 5% is stablecoin on stablecoin. That's how liquidity providers and traders can make money. How are you making money as IPOR? Well, so IPOR is, you know, as IPOR Labs, we build the protocol. You know, we were contracted to build the protocol. In the future, we will ask the Dow Treasury to for funds to continue. But really, the goal is to have everything happen around the, at the token level. The IPOR Labs team designed a new liquidity mining primitive or tokenomics primitive called Power Token. And so this is a modular architecture where you can have one token, you can stake that token, and then you can delegate that token to different modules. So in IPOR currently, one of the modules is this liquidity mining module where you know you can get that extra yield from uh, essentially the liquidity mining rewards. That same token can be delegated to a governance module that can be delegated to multiple modules. So the whole goal around IPOR is to build kind of the self-sustaining ecosystem. And that's really, you know, where we're essentially along the token economy of the IPOR. Another part of that is governance around the IPOR index, right? So this is, from my conceptual perspective, the most interesting thing where we have this risk-free rate that's native to blockchain, that's printed on-chain, that serves as a historical record of the risk-free rate in DeFi, you know, in the past and in the future is used to structure different deals and derivatives. So it's this on-chain, what we call public good, 
that any protocol can call to to get the risk-free rate at that moment and they can use it to structure their own deals. The power token, this is already part of what you call V2? The V2 is coming out in Q3. The power token was launched at the beginning of January. So the power token, okay. it aligned with, you know, kind of our boost in TVL. Recently, there were two governance decisions around the power token. One was to change the shape of the boosting curve. And the other one was to reduce the emissions by 30%. And that mm -hmm. has resulted in a, a stabilization of the liquidity mining. Yeah. And then the V2 is looking actually to build in more of the utility around the interest rate swap. So for example, what you mentioned, you know, the interest rate swap really can help create kind of a fixed rate product. So the V2 will focus around not necessarily trading of the underlying instruments, but building them into larger Position. So for example, a fixed rate borrow that's pulling from the deepest liquidity pools in the DeFi ecosystem and giving the fixed rate borrow at that, you know, at the best available rate on the market. So this is really the, the purpose of the V2. You're currently operating on the Ethereum chain, right? Which comes normally with high, up to very high gas fees. I'm asking you a question, which you have heard maybe a lot of times recently. When Arbitrum? When optimism, when layer two? Yeah, so we've really had a lot of discussions inside the community. Also checking out the test nets. The big thing is that, you know, we're waiting for this kind of V2 construction to go through audit. And then mm -hmm. there's a possibility that we could deploy on both Ethereum and Arbitrum test nets to make sure that everything's working correctly. It is a fairly complex architecture that also involves the asset management into the underlying protocol. So that needs to be tested. But there is an IPOR V2, for example, let's say on Arbitrum. I imagine that a lot of the trading volume could go there while a lot of the kind of structured products would go on Ethereum L1. Uh, because as a derivative protocol, it's underwriting the most liquid credit markets, which exist on Ethereum mm -hmm. layer one. And so I imagine that these larger structured products might live there while a lot of the more trading volume would be on something like an L2. My second last question. I mean, the IPOR index currently is based on stablecoins. So you use Compound and Aver at the base interest rates. Principally, you could do the same with ETH. Think, for example, or about liquid ETH staking which is one of the next big things in the DeFi space. Are you planning to expand your range of indices? Yeah, I think that's, that's really the next step, right? So we already have a study of the ETH staking rates under, undergoing at IPOR Labs. And the way that the infrastructure is built, so you have the ideation. We have an entire framework called the IPOR test framework which is what we use for our quant modeling and backtesting against the actual blockchain system built with the AMM so we can do you know, essentially market simulations on chain. And mm -hmm. so these derivative instruments are essentially volatility based. And so it's very straightforward to actually model them, test them and launch them. So the IPOR derivatives framework is pretty modular. And so, you know, the next step is to study the behavior, construct the AMM construct, back test it against the data and launch it in the wild. So this will actually be a very big part of the V2. That, that really sounds big, what you have on your roadmap for V2. Super amazing. Now I come to the very last question of this podcast. It is what we call the golden question. The golden question is normally a bit challenging. So for today, you know, 
Darren, taxes and regulation or crypto and regulation, we know that this is not the easiest relationship between the crypto industry and regulators. The taxes are facing more scrutiny. The SEC and the US really going after Coinbase, although Coinbase tries to be quite regulatory compliant compared to other taxes. At the same time, we hear more and more requests of regulators for DeFi companies to follow KYC, AML procedures, and to apply, let's say, the classical regulatory framework to DeFi. So my question is, how does the future of DeFi look like? Will there be regulated DeFi platforms and non-regulated DeFi platforms in the future? And if so, will there be a dark DeFi market remaining where liquidity is provided by illicit funds? What's your view on that? I think that we'll have a convergence. I think it'll take a, a, a lot more time, you know, that, than we think. So, you know, if we take the, the regulatory actions that are happening in the U.S., they're extremely aggressive. And, you know, my, maybe they'll push all the innovators out. And I think that's maybe from a competitive perspective, not a very intelligent thing to do where you have, you know, the EU, which is typically considered a much slower and a much more conservative mm -hmm. that has a much more open logical framework that it's not a almost a hundred year old securities law construct that is being used to regulate something that's completely new. There's a lot of things that are incompatible that need to be re-looked at. So for example, if we talk about liquidity pools, right? If you go by traditional banking definitions, these are commingled funds and to protect clients, you need to have segregated accounts. Well, in Ethereum, it is possible, but it's not feasible and it's not rational because it kills the cost of transaction and makes it not useful, right? The other part is, you know, the KYC, once you have this thing that goes cross borders, it's much more difficult to enforce, but it's doable. Uh, but you have other kind of risk-based approaches. For example, I think Chainalysis has a tool where it essentially does like a dirty money score. And this kind of a risk-based approach versus a KYC-based approach is also, you know, extremely valuable. So there, there's different things about actually the technological construction that are also challenging from a regulatory perspective because it, it doesn't match. And it's not necessarily because people don't want to build things that work with regulation. It's the crypto space and, and people are pushing forward on utility. For example, you know, iPOR is looking at bringing utility and kind of this base stabilizing layer to the fixed income market inside of DeFi. Right. But we were looking at the uptake of Aave Arc, for example, which is the permissioned pools of Aave, and it really didn't have any uptake. So from an entrepreneur's perspective, if you're waiting for regulation, you'll never build anything because you'll never get clarity. And coming from a 12 year view in this industry, if I was waiting for regulatory clarity, there would be there would be nothing. Right. But I mean, having an intelligent and two way dialogue, it makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, something like interest rate derivatives are a very kind of institutional tool. There's a lot of back and forth that needs to be put into kind of protocol design. And yeah, it makes sense that large institutions will be coming into DeFi through fixed income. So I think it's something that's an inevitability. What's the timeline? I don't really know. Yeah, definitely. It's very difficult to give a timeline on this, but I 100% agree with, with what you were saying. 
blockchain as a new technology offers alternative ways of doing KYC. And, and like you mentioned, chain analysis with their chain analytics is a, a good example of that. These analyses are sometimes more precise than the traditional threat file system when it comes to identifying illicit behavior. So if regulators would be open to this new technology, and if they start to understand, they would see that the blockchain technology is even more powerful and it will be even easier for them to handle the whole thing than in TreadFi. Darren, it was a big pleasure talking to you. To a veteran like you, such a deep expert in DEXs and crypto exchange in general. And I think IPOR is really, really a, a cool concept, especially considering what you said, what you have in your pocket or on your roadmap for V2. That looks very, very promising. Darren, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Dear listeners, we hope you liked this talk. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Stay loyal to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise.